What's up, y'all? I'm your host, Aaron Lloyd, and this is episode 43 of The Creation Grounds. Before I get into our next guest, I want to encourage you to like, share, subscribe to anybody who you think will find value, be inspired, educated, entertained, and all of that. Before I get to our next guest, I... I want to just say that I think this episode has the potential to really spark and ignite light in people who may be in dark places, people who may be really struggling, particularly in these times, Um, because our next guest is Jake Evans, and he's somebody who has suffered from depression, and he's somebody who is an addict or is is a recovered addict. he so in 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 preparation for this episode i i got some interesting statistics so 17.3 million that's 7.1% of the adult populations in america suffer from depression or have have suffered from a depressive episode and 264 million suffer worldwide um and our next guest is no exception he, when he was 11 he attempted suicide thank god he's still around he's doing great good and great service for people who are um not only does he help you with your goals but he really has a passion and a soft spot for helping people who struggle with addiction or know somebody who has struggled from addiction or struggling from addiction um, in this episode, we talk about what his earliest memory of the arts and music is because he was an all-state jazz musician. He was a very high-functioning addict, meaning he college graduate, was top of class, things like that. Very smart, very astute person. And we talk about what causes addiction, what, what the moments leading up to his first use was, what some misconceptions about addiction are. Um, what some myths or beliefs held by people who aren't addicts um, about people who are, what those are, and what what the the moment leading up to him becoming sober was, and he he gives some what what the brain science behind addiction is, and how he basically recovered, and, and encouragement for people who may be struggling with addiction or depression, and I really pray and hope that this episode reaches anybody who it needs to reach. And I pray that if you are in a dark place, that you realize that there are people out there who are willing to help. And I hope that this sparks and keeps your light going in the world. Let's get to the show with Jake Evans. I'm very pleased to welcome our next guest, Jake Evans. How are you doing, Jake? Doing really good, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell me, where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about Jake and what your story is. It's always interesting whenever um, it starts off with where I grew up. So explaining where I grew up is kind of tough. I grew up in West Virginia, but when most people think of West Virginia, they were thinking like cars on cinder blocks, um, rundown shacks, dilapidated houses. Uh, And that's not where I grew up. I grew up in uh, Martinsburg, West Virginia, which is in the eastern panhandle. So it's the tip of the state, you know. Not making a gesticulation. I'm just saying this is where I grew up. Um, it's right on the border of Maryland and D.C. So, like, you have Baltimore, which is about mm, roughly 75 minutes away. Then you have D.C., which, depending on traffic, is about an hour and a half away. So, there's a lot of people who work in those cities who live in my neck of the woods. Right. And so, um, it's like it's, it's rural, it's suburban, it's city city esque, all in the same on the same vein if you go 10 miles in either direction you're in Virginia or Maryland from where I live wow so you kind of grew yeah. up uh, easy access to the city either, either way well it's interesting my mom worked in East Knee 
still works in D.C. She's a presidential appointee. So if you don't know what that means, that means that there's cabinet members. Um, and then there's directly beneath cabinet members, there's your deputy secretaries. And those are presidential appointees. And that's what my mom is. And she's been there for a number of years now for a number of administrations, which basically means she's like top 5% of the federal government. And so for, for years, she drove in there. She would take us in. Um, whenever, um, you know, further on down my story, my band would play in and around D.C. and Baltimore area. Uh, I, it, it was just a hop, skip, and a jump in a way. And, like, what's really cool about my area in particular is that um, there's a lot of history involved. So, like, Civil War created the state. Um, there's, it was literally all fought up and around the Shenandoah River, River Valley. So, like, there's a lot of history, a lot of rich history. There's a lot with our nation's capital right there. Um, there's a richness in terms of culture because of Baltimore being there. There's, there's just a lot about that area that, like, I look back on it and, um, and realize how much of a melting pot it really was, mm-hmm. even though it's West Virginia. Right, right. What would you say that your your earliest memory of the arts and music are? <laughs> My absolute earliest memory would probably be... So, I remember being, like, roughly... Um, let's see. Uh, I was probably eight or nine years old. And when I was eight or nine, I really, really, really wanted to be in my own band. I, I loved music. I loved what it took to write music. I love the art of the story. Um, my favorite band at that time would probably have been the Beatles. Um, my favorite artist at that time probably would have been James Morrison um, or Jim Morrison. And then so I, I was also reading William Blake whenever mm-hmm. I was eight or nine years old, the poet. So, I mean, I, I, was, I was always really well-read. And I remember having this huge three-ring binder, and I called it... <laughs> Um, Jake's Encyclopedia of Music and literally what I did is every single song that I liked I would listen to the song and repeat this before you could like I, you had to like hit rewind and, like hold the button <laughs> like a sense yeah yeah so like you used to have to do that and so I would like rewind it write down every single lyric you couldn't this was predating like internet looking up lyrics and stuff so I would write down every single lyric of every single song figure out the rhyme structure um, I would talk about the way that like there were changes in the breakdowns of the song and like map them out. And I did that for like probably like two or three years consistently every single day. And I told my parents that I wanted to be a guitarist. I wanted to learn how to play guitar. My cousin got a guitar and I was like, man, that's so cool. And I think like his first song that he knew how to play was like some Elvis song. And I just thought it was awesome that somebody like figured out how to play guitar that I knew personally. And um, they told me if I wanted to know how to play guitar, I had to learn a classical instrument first. Mm-hmm. And um, I had braces at the time, so I tried every instrument, saxophone, trumpet, um, everything. And because of the braces, nothing would let me make a sound. Oh, man. Except for a trombone. So, you know, here I was, I wanted to be a cool guitar player, write my own songs and everything, but I had to go through the threshold of learning the trombone first. And uh, my parents' rule was that when I joined the school band, and when I played my first concert, they would buy me a guitar. Wow. So, so then I could, I could learn how to play guitar. So I ch- had just changed schools, and I just started the lessons maybe a week before. And the school music teacher I walked up to her. I was like, so there's a school band. And she goes, yeah. I was like, do you guys have an open seat for a trombonist? Because I just transferred in. 
And uh, she's like, maybe, it depends. you know how to play trombone? And I was like, yeah, I do. I've only taken like maybe two lessons at the time. Wow. And, and uh, I sat down to try out, and it just so happened that like she gave me the spot, and the concert was the next weekend. So within two weeks, I got my guitar. Wow. Because well, I met the requirements that they originally said. And so the, the only rule was that I had to continue on um, with trombone lessons. And so I did, and I played trombone all throughout middle school. And then um, I learned guitar, pretty much self-taught my, um, I think so, I had to take the trombone lessons, but pretty much self-taught guitar all the way through middle school and started my first band um, at the end of eighth grade. Awesome. And your your experience in school and your teen and adult, your young adult years, um, wrapped yeah. in music and what else can you tell me about like growing up in elementary school and, yeah. and a little bit of so, high school? Music for me... I guess the easiest way to put it is like this. So when I was growing up, my, my mom and my dad were busy building crews. My dad is a, um, he's a family practitioner dentist. My mom is a high-ranking government official. So a lot of times, I'm not saying that they intentionally did this, but a lot of times to me in my childhood mentality, it registered to me that like, the careers were more important than me. I didn't really connect with anything other than music. Mm. right? And I felt like the, these artists like Kurt Cobain or like, or uh, John Lennon in his later career, or like these, these people just understood where I was coming from, the angst, the the feeling like a um, like an outsider, and so I really just dove into that stuff, and music became an outlet, a way for me to connect to myself and like get my feelings out, and I started writing my own my own songs when I was like eleven, probably around eleven. Um, and then just like putting it on out, none of them were good. I can't. I, I remember my first song; it was not good. <laughs> but um, you know, it still it was like it was it was therapeutic for me to an extent. Uh, well, definitely it was therapeutic for me. I don't know what it was therapeutic for at the time. Looking into it, I just knew that it made me feel better. Yeah. Right. It, it gave me something to do that was productive. It gave, it, like it didn't matter where I was; I could pick up a guitar and entertain myself for hours. And that was important for me. Like I also. Being from a small town, it's not like you kind of have to. It's interesting. So I played football in high school, well, all throughout school. So I was played football. Um, I was in show choir and jazz band. I was an all state jazz musician. Show choir is like, if you don't know what that is, just imagine like the TV show Glee, but like <laughs> way more, uh, um, like regimented, like way more. It's like weird. It's like weird mechanical dancing, but like it's just like the TV show Glee, and then um, jazz band, my own band, and 4.0 students. So like on paper, I was like a golden child, right, right, in small town, small town America, but on like the fringes of the city. So I was maybe 14, 15. My favorite band at the time was Weezer. And I like wanted to be the next Weezer, and so like I just wrote these pop punk songs, and I was like the the ticket is playing shows, and so when I was like fourteen or fifteen years old, I was playing shows with bands that were nineteen, twenty, twenty one, twenty two, and I was being exposed to a lot of things that fourteen year olds probably are exposed to, but probably not in the quantity that I was exposed to it. Right. So, I mean, like, you, you may have an older brother or a cousin, and you know that they, like, drink or that they smoke weed, but you may know that guy in school who does, and you're kind of exposed to it, but, like, I was playing shows with these people and seeing that, like, the people that are, quote-unquote, cooler, this is what they're doing. 
Mm. And they're inviting me into the fold and asking me to do it. And I'm denying it. And then when I give up on that band and I start a new project, I try smoking weed for the first time. And in my opinion, you know, I don't knock it for anybody who does that stuff. But for me, it switched something chemically in my brain. And when it did, it was like, to me, it registered as instantaneous connection. Like here I was using music to try to connect with people the whole time. And then I take this drug and it's instantaneous friendship. And that's how it registered for me. And it does different stuff for different people. I know it is. But um, for me, I was using it for all the wrong reasons. Because I was using it to feel accepted by a group of people who I didn't feel accepted by. Right. And um, you, if it, did you have an experience with like depression and attempted suicide at 11? What, yeah, what so, yeah, I did. And so when I was... Again, growing up in West Virginia, although it's it has its its benefits, it also has things that aren't necessarily as good either. And so, one of the things that um, that's that stinks for somebody in my particular circumstances at the time was that I didn't necessarily fit the mold. And this was the early '90s, so they want to put everybody in on Ritalin. Hmm. Um, if you don't, if you're just misbehaving, then like everybody needs to be put on Ritalin. You have a behavioral issue. You got ADHD or AD or ADD. And so, um, my parents didn't believe in that. And I realized very quickly that if I acted out, my parents came. So again, like I'm fighting for the wrong kinds of attention. And they put me into a um, they put me into a private school, which is where I took the trombone lessons. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that I asked at this private school was a Catholic school. Was I asked why the Bible had quotation marks if the earliest account of Jesus is written six years post his death? Quotation marks imply a direct conversation. And granted, this is like 10-year-old speak, but like, I was like, you know, quotation marks means that I'm saying it right now, so why is there quotation marks if it's a 60-year gap? Mm. And rather than like answering me and, tut- and tutoring me and like trying to disciple me in this, um, they ostracized me. They're like, you can't be in religion class anymore. You're kicked out for asking questions. Wow. And uh, if you're in Catholic school and you get kicked out of religion class, it doesn't really leave you many options. <laughs> you kind of need your religion class in order to <laughs> continue going through Catholic school. So my dad's um, statement to me was that if I got kicked out of school, he was going to send me to military school. And for a kid who's already struggling with this idea that his parents would rather build their careers and be with him, and you know, yeah, we had like great weekends and family vacations and all that other stuff that comes along with um, having high performing parents. I, the one thing that I didn't feel like I had was like a true connection with my parents and like love, um, especially at that age. And so when you're told, we're going to send you away, that registers to me as the world would almost be better. My family would feel better if I wasn't around. They don't want me around. Like I'm too difficult to have around. And I took that and I ran with it. And, you know, to be 11, 11 years old and thinking and contemplating and coming up with a plan and setting forth an overt action to do that, um, that really goes to show my mental state and how I perceive certain events and how I internalize certain things to equate out to my worth and how that kind of set me up. Not to say that it's any one person's fault or anything. It's just, that's how my thinking was skewed. And so I want to feel accepted. I want to feel like I belong. I want to feel connected to something because these are all the things I didn't feel like that I had. And so when when we need an alcohol come along and then all of a sudden like this group of people that I view as um, you know, amazing musicians in the scene that I'm trying to play in, 
and they like me because I'm doing this with them and I'm young and that's cool that I'm young and I'm doing it. Um, that establishes and fills that void that I feel like I was missing for so long. That establishes the connection, the belonging, the feeling a part of. And for me, it was it was sad that that's what wound up happening. I know that that's not everybody's story, but um, it truly is something that uh, it, it was just it just was what it was and I had to deal with it from that point forward and I think that I just covered it up and buried it deep down inside over and over and over and over and over again. What do you consider the qualities of an addictive personality and, and how does one notice or become aware and get in front of any potential challenges that can lead to severe addiction? There's, I think that there's a number of them honestly that wind up popping up and so one of the ones that I would honestly say is that disconnection and I think that the disconnection I think is, is definitely a predetermining factor and so I've seen I've seen a lot I've had maybe 5,000 conversations with people that have struggled with addiction or on the verge of struggling with addiction or just are genuinely unhappy um, like in their life and I think that ultimately the one thing is that lack of connection a lack of purpose and fulfillment and feeling like you're trying to fill that void with, with something, with anything. It doesn't have to be a drink or a drug. It can be anything. It can be accomplishments. It can be um, work. It can be, um, you can honestly try to fill that with anything. I think mm. any material thing, and the more that you realize, at least this is how it worked for me, the more that you realize that the more that you accomplish, the bigger you notice the whole act of giving. Wow. Like you probably have that personality style. Um, and eventually there's, there's just a point of diminishing returns that happens. So is there any one thing that causes addiction or is it what what causes addiction would you say is it just it's, it's circumstantial would you say No I definitely wouldn't say it's circumstantial there's a lot of leading, leading evidence out there that'll tell you that it's genetically based um, so you have to have a genetic predisposition um, my, I, I believe that that to an extent is true right like some people's brains are hardwired to be more predisposed towards becoming addicted to something hmm. now what do we choose to internalize that with like um, you know, work or accomplishment or whatever that is, some people are able to, to remove themselves from that. Now, I believe it's the perfect storm. You asked if it's circumstantial, I would say no. Um, I would say everybody at some point in time in their life, they really want to be experiences some degree or variance of trauma. And when you look at that trauma, some people understand how to process through that in a proper way. Other people don't. And for those people who don't, it, that, that's the crucial defining moment, is the trauma. And how do you handle the trauma? Are you somebody who, who walks through it, who processes it, who does the things that you feel like that, that you need to do and it no longer holds weight, that you don't feel bonded by it, you don't feel chained by it? Or are you somebody who stuffs it down, who tries to avoid it, who tries to fill it up with other things, and to try to um, you know not think about it? If that's the case, then like, the genetic predisposition, the trauma... Um, and then again, continued trauma, and then just finding that substance. Like, because we're all experimenting at some point in time. Some people don't, but most of us do. Um, when that perfect storm hits, it's a recipe for disaster. For some people, it takes months. For some people, it takes years. For some people, it takes decades. For some people, it never happens at all. But I believe the genetic predisposition is about half of the population, maybe a little bit more. The trauma, I believe, is everybody. And then the perfect storm with those two pre-factors and, and, um, already being met, I think it's just, it's inevitable. 
What are some myths or beliefs held by people who aren't struggling with addiction or don't know any addicts or addictive personalities? What are what are some myths held by individuals like that about people that are addicts? I think that okay, so for instance, like one of the myths that I know that I had was that you have to be underneath of a bridge, right? <laughs> like like somebody who's addicted means that like you're under a bridge, you're homeless, you don't have a job, um, you know, you're the scum of the earth, quote unquote. At least that's the way that I viewed it. Maybe whenever I was like, do you remember Dare? Yeah, I had Dare in my in my okay. elementary schools. You remember the way that they that they try to characterize somebody who was on drugs with Dare? Um, they might have. I don't remember. That was such a long time away for, for, for me. So, so for, for the people who don't remember Dare, here's what I remember about it. They came in with lungs in a jar. And the lungs in the jar were like decrepit looking, just the most disgusting looking thing you could ever imagine. Then they came in with a liver in a jar. And like the most decrepit, just like vile looking thing you could ever imagine. And then they started showing pictures of people with meth mouth, of people that are in and out of jail. And then they were like, this is the face of addiction. This is what you're doing to your to your body whenever you choose to drink and drug. These are the things that are happening. So they create this very polarizing world, hmm. right? Like, you guys are kids. These are the people that are on drugs. Don't go on drug kids because you'll wind up like this, right? And so I'm personifying. And so that character is in my head as that's what somebody who's on drugs looks like. Right. That's what somebody who has a problem looks like. Remember all along, like I'm having all these signs all throughout the course of my life that say that, like, you know, I'm I'm not dealing with trauma properly. I'm not dealing with um, I'm not handling my emotions like in the best way. I'm trying to do everything I can to escape myself, hmm. right? Like I, I'm overactive in school. Um, anything that keeps me away from my house, I'm doing so that I can try to keep my brain from thinking about the things I don't want to think about. And the the real picture of addiction versus this characterized movie Hollywood version of what it is are two very different things because when I decided to get sober I was in my second year of law school I'm a student body vice president I was working 60 hours a week I still had had a high GPA I just finished um, a four year degree in less than three years by taking 19 credit hours a semester on top of everything I just mentioned wow like I was a very different picture of what somebody who was highly addicted to opiates looks like and and the amount of opiates i was using was absurd based on like with that picture that i just defined I'm, i was using more than the people were underneath of the bridges wow yeah i was wow. using 30 pills a day and that's not to brag i was using 30 30 milligram pills a day that's that's how sick i was when i went into detox they were like we're surprised that your organs have to shut down mm-hmm. so like i would say one of the biggest misconceptions that are out there is that addiction has to look this way. Right. My my mission and my purpose is to try to catch this stuff before it ever gets to that point. Hopefully my story being the worst it ever gets for anybody moving forward. Right, right. And that by by me communicating these things, people can start to look at it and say like, you know, well, am I drinking out of boredom or am I drinking because I'm because it's social? Like most people, if we're drinking more than five a week, you technically qualify for being an alcoholic. Based on the DSM model, right? And most people don't realize that. Like anything more than three drinks in a sitting is considered binge drinking. And it's like most people don't realize that stuff. And it doesn't mean that you have a problem. It's just 
start thinking about it, start having the conversation, start looking at it. So then if you can catch this stuff before it happens, then maybe we don't wind up with as many people that are on the food, many people that are suffering with, with, you know, chronic mental health issues. Because all of life compounds on top of the initial issue. I could definitely see where if I didn't have the ability and the foresight to look at two very distinct paths, that would have been me. I just caught it maybe 10 years ahead of time. Wow. Uh, so you, you mentioned opiates. You mentioned kind of getting sober, what, what you're doing when you're about to get sober. Tell me about the moments leading up to your first use of opiates and what that what that was. Man, so there's a lot in between that my first use. I would say, so in order to provide context and pretext, is that like um, all throughout high school, I kind of mentioned it, like football, um, have my own band, jazz band, show choir, and in the background, I'm, I'm drinking and smoking weed because I feel like that's a cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. When I turn 18, 19 years old, all of a sudden I'm opened up to the festival scene. And that, that's like a, a completely different arena. You're talking stuff like ecstasy, acid, um, cocaine, just like a, a, whole, a whole different plethora of drugs that become available to people. And so based on that alone, I started experimenting with those things. And what was interesting for me was that I would have like these, these spells, these like three month long or like three week long, whatever it is, I would have these, these periods of my life where I would do an excess of these drugs. And then what would happen at the end would be that I would wind up saying, okay, I'm never going to do that again. Like I remember with LSD specifically, I had a string of like really awesome trips and I had a string of really bad trips. Then I had one really, really, really amazing trip. And I was like, nothing's ever going to compare to this. This is like a really, really, really amazing time. Anything I do would just be chasing this. I should never touch this again. And then I never did. And so I was also able to, to rationalize and to use logic to tell myself, well, I'm not addicted because I'm all, I've always been able to stop stuff in right. the past. If I didn't want to do it anymore, I just didn't do it. I did it with um, LSD. I did it with ecstasy. Um, I did it with shrooms. I did it with all these substances. I was able to stop. So fast forward, I'm in college um, I'm on this National Model United Nations trip, and I smoke weed with a group of kids. And one of the, and I used the word kids because I was a kid at the time too, but we're all young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we come back onto the bus, and I see this little blue pill getting crushed up by one of the people who I just smoked with. And he catches me looking at him, and he goes, you want some? And I was like, yeah, no, I'm good. I like The only thing I put up my nose is cocaine, as if to say, like, you know, I'm some sort of pedestal, drug addict or like put myself it's like yeah no I'm not going to snort a pill I'm only going to snort coke and um, <laughs> the guy was like well you can actually smoke these and I just got done smoking and, and for people who are out there maybe some people will understand this for whatever reason um, smoking weed uh, at that time smoking cigarettes like smoking was what got me introduced to all this stuff I really had a huge affinity for smoking mm-hmm. um, and so when that was presented I was like kind of scooby dooed me I was like huh like you can smoke those and he goes yeah I was like show me and so he shows me how he smokes them and then I was like let me try that and so I did and then the minute that I did you can kind of tell now by having this conversation I'm sure listening to me like my brain it's not to say I'm smarter than anybody because I don't think that I am I just think that like some people operate at a higher frequency Mm -hmm. like they just think like the brain just like moves faster some people are, are more chill more relaxed some people 
we just operate at different frequencies as people. Right. My, my frequency before, you think this is fast? My frequency before was maybe like 150 miles per hour. Wow. And when I took that, it was like... It chilled you I, out. Oh my gosh, it was insane. It like, I just remember everything feeling like it clicked into place for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, now I'm operating the way everybody this is what it feels like to feel normal I, I remember feeling that like now I'm operating at other people's frequency because for, for so long I felt like I couldn't connect with people normally because like I was too too hyped up I was too exuberant and like for certain things like sales or like campaigning and stuff along those lines like that's a great energy to have mm-hmm. but for, like deep bonded connections friendships it's, it's not it's, it's, it's harder to develop those because people have to get on your level or you have to get on theirs. I just didn't have that attunement. So when that happened for me, it was like everything slowed down. My brain finally just like stopped moving so fast. And I felt at peace. And it was the first time I ever remember feeling like peaceful. And I was like, this is dangerous, but I like it. And so... I kept doing it and it was weird. It was like I spoke better to the National Model United Nations. If you don't know what that is, basically you stimulate the real UN with schools from all over the world. It's like the top thinking minds. Um, and you all get together and you work for 13 hours a day and then you hang out with different cultures. And it's a really cool experience. If you haven't, if you're in college and you're not doing it, I suggest like at least checking it out. Mm-hmm. But um, you're working with cultures from all over the world and I was operating with them and I was connecting with them and I was tuning to them and I felt like I was giving better speeches. I felt like my work was better. Um, so it was very dangerous for me because I felt like it made me better. And so I did it that whole trip. And on the way back, I remember feeling like really tired, really run down. And I, you got to keep in mind, I've done like six other of these trips before. And mm-hmm. so I know something's different. Like something that just doesn't feel right. And as I'm getting off the bus, I didn't realize it at the time, but as I'm getting off the bus, the guy looks over at me and he goes, hey man, if you ever need any more of those, all you gotta do is call me. And like, now looking back on it, uh, he was a dealer, I was, I was a buyer, mm-hmm. and, um, and, I, and I got hooked, physically addicted on painkillers in four days. Wow, and, four days. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yep. And the only reason that I say, like, some people be like, oh, there's no way it was really that bad. It's like, you got to remember everything that I'm doing on a daily basis. Right. Like, I'm, I'm working full time. I'm student body vice president. I'm in law school, which is like full. I basically have three full time jobs all at the same time. Mm-hmm. While doing so, school. While in school. Doing your Yeah, it's work. like, I can't afford to feel sick. Right. Like, like, at all. Period. I can't afford to miss any days. And, like, and I knew what I was feeling then. So, like, that just started a whole year and a half of me using every single day to avoid that feeling. Wow. And, like, and I think that maybe that's why my my addiction story might be a little bit more accelerated once I found my drug of choice. Mm-hmm. Was that I feel like everything in my life was accelerated. Like, I was doing three times the amount of the average Joe would be doing in college. So, like, I'm obviously doing three times as many drugs to get me through it. Wow. And so, like, my my my, uh, my addiction is probably three times faster. My addiction story is probably three times faster than the average person my age. Wow. So, you know, I, I'm blessed in a lot of regards, and I'm also, like, as far as what that's concerned, I'm also, like, you know, it's a tragedy in a lot of regards because, like, not everybody has, um, not everybody has,
has the same story that I have. Like the guy who got me hooked, I remember, um, and I got myself hooked, but the guy who introduced me, he and I were using for a while together and he wound up passing away six. So I got sober six months later. I tried to get him into the same program, mm-hmm. a newer friend. And he told me he was fine. I didn't push. And exactly one month after that, uh, he wound up passing away in his dorm room by himself on Thanksgiving Day. Oh, man. And, and like, I look at that and I think about the fact that, like, that could have been me. Right, right. It should have been me. Grace. Uh, like how, how I was using way more than he was. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's really, it's, it's just bizarre. I know that you asked me a very a very typical question, and I somehow got diverted on all of that. But. No, that that was that was all great. I think it's it's great. I, what so you you kind of went into like the music uh, from wanting wanting basically to find your your group of people, yeah, you know, a group of people to then getting to the music festival scene and doing it because that's a cool thing to do. Get introduced mm-hmm. to opiates. You're a high achiever. You're 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 doing everything that a, that a great student, great human would do. Um, all mean meanwhile you're you're addicted and no yeah. one would know it from looking out. What was the what was the the thing that really said no more? I'm not doing this anymore. What what led to the decision to be sober for you? Well, it's, so again, I'm going to provide a little bit of context just just so that it can make a lot of sense. So my best friend is a drummer. I learned to play guitar to him, learning how to play drums and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So like. We're just in sync like that. And if you're a musician, I know that you know what I'm talking about. When like sometimes there's just somebody where it just like clicks, mm-hmm. and like and you know that you're musically in tune with each other for life. Like it can be like 15 years down the line, you guys would still just like know the cues in each other's eyes. And for those people that are out there, I know that you know what I'm talking about. That was this guy for me. Like he and I were just extremely, extremely close, and he wound up living right beside me. Um, he was in law school as well. We were both living right beside each other. And during this year and a half period, I maybe saw him twice. And like we had known each other since we were eight years old. Wow. So like that, that was a huge indicator that like the thing that I thought that I was doing, right? So the thing that introduced me to all this stuff was the prospect of connecting with people. And the thing that it's actually doing is it's pulling me away from the people that I'm closest to. I'm withdrawing because I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I don't want people to ask me what's up because... I don't, I don't want to, I'm not ready to admit that yet. Like, I know that I'm sick, right? right? And I know that if I know that I'm sick, then these people can probably see it too. So I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, and I'm withdrawing more and more and more from the people that I'm actually close to. Mm-hmm. And I'm putting these pseudo connections with other people just based around the premise of using drugs, like nothing deeper than that. And I'm in law school and I have this teacher, and I'm in a class that I didn't even mean to be in. So my mom, her specialty is cybersecurity and information technology. The class was called Cyber Law. And so in my, in my mind, I didn't even read the class description. I thought it was, we're prosecuting black hat cyber criminals, like people mm-hmm. that are like hacking into systems. That's not what the class was. The class was online copyright infringement. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, what happened whenever Walmart, or whenever like, the bomb would been by their webdom? And like, do they have... Um, like, do they have the rights to sue a company for buying McDonald's.com? Like, mm. like, those are the sort of cases. And I just, like, didn't... I was so loaded, I forgot to withdraw from the class. So I'm in this class by happenstance. Mm-hmm. And I never talked to the teacher. And then about halfway through the semester, she just puts a note down on my desk. And it's like, we need to talk after class. And I didn't know who she was. She didn't know who I was, really. So I give her the thumbs up. And I go up and I talk to her. And she pulls out this sheet of paper. 
She's like, I need to talk to you, Mr. Evans. And she goes, one time. Tardy, 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 one time. Tardy, 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 and just goes through. And she's like, one time, three times this entire semester. She's like, if you show up tardy one more time, you're going to fail this class. You're not going to be able to take the final. And she's like, and that's a shame because you have the highest test grade average in the class. She's like, and you're going to fail because you just can't show up one time. Wow. And she's like, and I know that if it's the case in this course, it's got to be the same in other classes. And then she asked me, she's like, I think there's something wrong. Are you okay? And it was like, have you ever seen um, <laughs> Saved by the Bell? Remember that? Yep. Remember whenever he the freeze frame and like <laughs> Yeah. He'd be like, time out. And then he would like talk to the camera. Yep. Well, I had a moment like that. Wow. Where, where I timed out and I like saw my life branch off into two very distinct paths. Wow. I was like, I take the help right now and I have no clue where this is going to end. Right? Like, this is very unknown. I could, I could tell her everything and just see what happens. Or I pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm smart enough. Like, I know I can pass. Like, I can get all this stuff taken care of, get my degree, become an attorney. But at some point, I'm going to have to deal with this. I could wind up becoming disbarred. I could wind up never starting a family. I could wind up having all these things happen. And so I chose the other unknown. And I chose to tell her. And, like, I just vomited it all out. And when I did, I felt this huge relief come off of my chest. Like, <sighs> so I finally admitted to somebody I had a problem. I was like, now what? She goes, but now we go tell the dean. And I'm like, Ooh! And I just cringe. cringe. I'm like, now we gotta go tell somebody else. Less than two minutes after first admitting to it. And I did. And then I felt even better. And I was like, so now what? And they're like, well, now you gotta tell your family. And so, like, again, like, these are like two high performing people. And I remember telling my mom, grabbing her by the knees, being like, I'm highly addicted to opioids. I don't know what I'm doing. I need to get off of this stuff and I need help. And her very first words to me were, well, we don't know what we're doing. So, yeah, so we saw the world's number one best information giver. We saw Google. And I wound up in just, you know, Joe Blow's 3-Day Recovery Center. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anything about what I was choosing. I didn't know the right questions to ask. I didn't know what like, different programs offered different things. I just wound up, wound up in some random treatment center. And the first thing that they told me to do is look to your left and look to your right. One of you is going to be dead. The other one's going to be in jail. You'll be lucky to sit in the same seat that you're sitting in. Mm-hmm. people out of this group of 40 are going to get sober and so like my mind didn't go to oh I'm one of two that's me my mind went to oh, I hope I'm not dead mm-hmm. and so like it starts off with a very negative narrative for people when they're first getting in sobriety right and so I instantaneously started planning my relapse I was like I'm not going to fail anyway wow. and so when I got out it wasn't long I had quadrupled my intake in less than a 60 day time frame of opiates yeah. oh you mean after yeah, yeah. oh wow because like well because now you're mixed with the cats out of the bag right. right so you don't have to try to hide it anymore and then on top of that you're mixing guilt and shame because you failed a mm. program right so like and you're hopeless because you just got told that like no matter what you do more than likely you're going to fail so like you're mixing all these negative mindsets on top of the already like thriving addiction. And so finally, um, after all this stuff was said and done, I, I remember I was like, I, I need more. Um, I went back to the same exact 30 day treatment facility. And I was like, I don't care what you tell me to do. 
anything you say, I'm going to do it times two, right? I'm going to do the same exact thing I did whenever I was sick, except now I'm going to do it to get healthy. And so it, it started like a year-long process for me. I went to a 30-day facility, then I went to a five-month program, and then I stayed inside of a, a program for about a year. And I'm not saying everybody has to do that. Um, I'm an extremist by nature. I listening to my story. Um, I wanted to know that it was a wrong. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know that I was going to be okay. And like all throughout that process, what was interesting for me was that I had to reconnect with myself because I've become so disconnected from everything, right? And like so many years of being like wanting to be what everybody else wanted me to be rather than being who I was, rather than being the kid who sat down and wrote out all those songs, right? Just like word for word, like line for line. I had lost that passion for anything revolving around life and had to find it again. And for me, it took me, it took me about a year to really get back on track. It took me about another year to realize that I'm lacking passion. And then finally, like through finding my wife who awkward the musician, and then like eventually having our own child who like, I don't know if you guys heard it at least once or twice, but like she's always grabbing a guitar and like she's only one. And like it's wow. crazy. They say that like some people you can just tell that they're born with the gift. Yeah. Like she's like one years old, she's always drumming, she like has this little baby piano, she'll hit it, she'll sing into I swear, it's the weirdest thing, but like, uh, she has been like born with the gift. She'll like grab a guitar and like she already knows how to strum it and she'll sing in key and like, it's, it's bizarre. Some people are just born with it. Yeah. She, and she's one of them and it's like, I, I watch my life come completely full circle. And like now, like the thing that I use to connect before, to connect with myself, I'm going to use to like connect with my child. That's beautiful. And it was, I should have never have lost sight of that true beauty of what it was for me, but I did because of like social pressures and everything else. It's, it's the arts are a difficult scene for people. It's almost as bad as um, it's almost as bad as being a lawyer <laughs> in terms <laughs> of like because um, it forces you to go to those places, right? So you can communicate that stuff to people. Like you're hurt, your pain, um, the world is it. And there's this misnomer that we have to be tortured to be artists. Right. And that's that's not necessarily true. We just have to communicate the world as we see it. Right? It's and it's like, we were talking about this beforehand, like Charles Gambino, it's like for every, for every critique on American culture that he gives, he also gives a song about just like being blessed and like, and like just like loving life in general. And like, I think that, that like that's the true beauty of artistry is, is the two-sided coin. I spend so long focusing on the misery. Right. That's beautiful. Uh, so what 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 is cognitive restructuring? And tell me about your experience. So heavily addicted. Yeah. What did you do to turn yourself around? And and how can others? What words of advice or encouragement for artists mm-hmm. or just anybody who struggles with addiction, either in plain yeah. sight or hidden? How, what 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 advice do you have for them? So cognitive restructuring is a super, super, super simple term. Um, sounds sounds complex, but it's really not. What it means is this: is that for think about your your pathway to work, right? Let's just say that you have like a normal nine to five, and you find that route that you like to drive, getting to work. You know, it's going to take you X amount of time. Your favorite coffee shops on the way. Like you just develop this routine, this habit. 
And so you keep doing that same pathway. Even though it may not be the fastest way, you still do it because it's the way that you like. Mm-hmm. Right? And so and you do it again and again and again and again and again. It becomes easier, 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 more mindless, more mindless, more mindless. Can you relate with anything I'm saying? Yeah, it's like taking a subway to where you need to go. Yeah, yeah. exactly, right? And it's like in... Even though, like, you, you could probably ride a bike, you might get there faster, you could take a cab, you might get there faster, you still choose that route because it's what's comfortable, it's what's familiar. That's likened to a neural pathway or a specific line of thinking, right? So, like, think about, like, your nightly routine or your morning routine. You become, it becomes habitual. It becomes, like, non-thinking. That's the way that our brain operates with neural pathways, so the more that you think a thought, there's going to be a thought that's going to, well, first it's going to be an emotion that leads to a thought that leads to behavior, right? So something's going to happen. It's going to trigger an emotion, which then leads to a thought, which then leads to a behavior. And that's a neural pathway cycle. Cognitive restructuring is what I call a pattern interrupt. Basically what it is is it stops the signal, catches it before the behavior. And then what you do is then change the behavior. So as opposed to stopping at the coffee shop every morning, you don't go to the coffee shop, right? You, you do something different. And by doing something different, it changes the time that you arrive at work or it changes the mood that you arrive at work. It changes something, mm-hmm. right? So cognitive restructuring literally means changing neural pathways, developing new neural pathways, and changing that over and over and over again to build up the other side of the brain. And then by doing that, what you're going to do is, is that you're going, to, you're going to eventually replace some of these negative habits with other habits. So for people that are suffering from alcohol, um, substance abuse, things along those lines, for some people, they I use the driving home example or the driving to work example because I have several clients that I've worked with. I'm a personal coach where like their nightly routine would be to stop off at the liquor store after they got off, buy, buy a bottle, and then go home. Well, if you normally went right out of work, go left. But then you're not passing the same liquor store that you're used to going to. And something as simple as that can change somebody's whole night. Wow. And so cognitive restructuring really is about sitting down and breaking down your day and becoming more routine with like opposite routines that are going to be more beneficial for you. So if you're used to getting up at 10 a.m. because you had a whole night's worth of drinking and blah, 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 whatever, we'll start getting up at 5.30, right? And then maybe you'll go to bed earlier because you can't drink all night right. so like and like little things like that will wind up like shifting your behavior will wind up changing the way that your neurochemistry works uh, what resources or for people living with addiction or know somebody who they love is living with addiction what resources do they, like websites books um, or your services can they yeah, can they tap into to help cure or re- rehabilitate them so the number one thing I would say is this, is um a coach is phenomenal for a number of reasons. One, um, a personal recovery coach or a peer recovery coach can help the family, um, can help the family understand like what, what is available that's out there. And any coach that I believe that's good is really going to take the time to understand the person who's struggling. Because there's a million treatment centers that are out there. There's a million treatment centers that do a really good job. I personally believe that the journey from zero to five, so zero means that you're dead. No one's really at a zero, Right. Five means that you're functioning within reality, like within society. You're able to maintain a job. You're feeling confident about yourself. You're getting up at a normal time, going to bed at a normal time. You're operating at a five. You can do the basic functions of society. The journey from zero to five, I believe, can take place in about 30 days. I believe any place can help you do that, mm-hmm. right? It's And it's fast. But the journey from five or six to ten can take a lifetime. 
And I think that a lot of people where you see chronic relapsing or failure out of programs and all these other things because there's this huge misunderstanding that you're going to live a 10 life just because you get off of drugs and alcohol. That's not true, right? Like if I'm being honest with myself with where I'm at, I'm maybe at a six and a half. Wow, even at, okay, wow. Right, and, and like and, and with like six years, right? And it's because yeah. like when I look at it, if I'm ever living a 10 life, I hope it's on my deathbed that somebody tells me how amazing my life was. Right. Because that means that there's no more growth. Right, absolutely. So like I'll never be at a 10. And like, and I'm honest with myself about that. And I think that um, when people can have those conversations in the beginning and understanding certain things, like, you know, where do you want your life to be? So, for instance, like, I'm 30 years old. You would have asked me five years ago, where did you think I was going to be at 30? My answer wouldn't have been in Southern California, helping individuals um, get off of drugs and, like, helping families navigate through this thing. My answer would have been, like, oh, I'll be an attorney. I'll be living here. I'll be doing this. My life took a completely different direction. But the one thing that I have now that I never would have had back then is a peace of mind, love and respect for my fellow man, and love and respect for myself, right? And these are things that, like, I never would have conceptualized before. Right. And, like, from the heart of the matter, like, you asked, like, what resources are available, you need, I believe that we need to talk to people who have walked through those shoes, who have, who have been in that boat, because they can help you take less steps, right? Um... I'm not sure if you're a believer or not, but I'll, I'll close with this quick thought. Like, the thought is this: is Moses? It took him 40 years to walk through the desert to go from Egypt to Jerusalem. 40 years wandering around in circles to eventually get there. If you were to type the same path right now into Google Maps and walk it on foot, it says it'll take us seven days. Wow. The reason why is because somebody took the time to go through and map out the best course, right? to ensure the safe travel in the short amount of time. Well, I believe that's the same thing that like a good coach can do, is that they can help you not run into the wall so many times, not suffer from dehydration, not look for that thing as a mirage, and like they'll help you get across the desert in half the amount of time, a third of the amount of time, a tenth of the amount, a fortieth of the amount of time that it would have taken you to do it on your own. That's beautiful. So, so you, you're, I can tell you, you're very passionate about helping people, and, and what you're what you're teaching and what you're serving people with is not based on theory; it's based on experience. Um, yeah. What what else are you What else are you passionate about? Um, or what What are some of your passions? What are you passionate about today? That's a crazy. Well, my life. <laughs> That's like <laughs> in the in my head. Like as soon as you said, "What am I passionate about?" I was like, "Hurt." Um, number one would definitely be God. My relationship with God is something that I lost whenever I was younger because of that question mm-hmm. that I asked. I just, I was maybe 11 years old and I was like, okay, well, if this is what religion is and this is what faith is, I want nothing to do with it because I can't ask questions. Right. The really interesting story is that my, my wife, um, she never forced anything on me, right? I asked her because she was strong in her faith. And um, I was like, you know, what if I went to church with you? And she's like, yeah, you can come with me. And so, like, I started going with her and then it took me a handful of times, but eventually I wound up um, giving my life to Christ and they give you this, they give you this Bible. And in the Bible are like these notations. And I, it had been a week since I had like made my profession of faith. I didn't even think about it. And I opened up the Bible one day and written in the notations is just like somebody's, just somebody else's like viewpoint on the Bible. And if you're wondering why there's quotation marks in the Bible, it's because it's the Word of God and the Word of God cannot be flawed. And I was like, whoa. So fast forward like 20 years, mm-hmm. and I got the answer to the question. The very first question 
question that's answered is the same question that drove me away. I was like, that's wow. Yeah, and so I would say definitely like ever since that moment, I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm very, I'm going to develop this relationship. It's, it means a lot to me. Um, my relationship with my wife brought me back to the arts. I started trying to woo her with songs that I wrote for her because I had mentioned way back in the past, um, at the very beginning of this conversation, like one of my favorite lyricists is Jim Morrison, and he writes a lot through like allegory and writes a lot through through like simile and metaphor um i wrote like these really complex songs that i thought she understood it's like one of them one of the lines is uh two in the bush is worth more than one in the hand Mm -hmm. which is the exact opposite of you know one in the hand worth more than two in the bush which basically means what you have is better than what you can't get right we're trying to tell she always told me we were just going to be friends and i was trying to tell her like maybe going for something better is actually a better situation, even if we don't know that we're going to have it, might be better than what we currently have. I thought it was like this, like really deep. It is really deep, but to her, she's like, "Yeah, that's a cool lyric." She like didn't get what I was saying. <laughs> but like, I like wrote this whole string of songs for her um, in the beginning of our relationship. That's what brought me back to playing music again and brought me back um, to writing songs again. And then um, we were doing that, like writing music back and forth. And like, so our child is now grown up with music in the household and that's what she loves and so i would have to say number one god number two oh, number three my kid number four the art and making sure that that's something that's vital within my household um is making sure that like i don't, don't stifle that right like i inspire them and um i would say like number number five like not to say that like anybody who i ever work with is on the bottom of my totem pole it's just that, like um if i'm looking at five things that i care about the first three are my own home and make me the best person I can be for my clients. And my clients would probably be number five, the people that I'm helping day in and day out. Um, they're like a part of my family, honestly. Like their success is my success. So I would say that that's something else that I'm passionate about as well. I love it. Um, I ask all my guests this. Uh, when you think of the word creative, who comes to mind for you and why? Oh my gosh. The, the list is, is immense. I remember being... So, uh, Leonardo da Vinci was honestly like one of the, the most insane thinkers of his generation. Like, obviously, right? Like we're still talking about him. Um, he is without a doubt a creative. And if I look at my own life, I know that I really envied him. Like he didn't, he wasn't just an artist. He wasn't just, um, a mathematician. He wasn't just any one thing. He was everything. And I think that that's what I was trying to be too. Um, whenever I'm looking at it, it's like I didn't just want to be that one guy who was known for doing that one thing. I wanted to be a lot of things. Um, and I couldn't... And I look at him and I'm like, yeah, that's somebody who I really aspired to be like. So I would say he, without a doubt, is a cre- is creative. Um, questionably one of the most creative that's ever existed. Um, and then in terms of like modern day creativity... Again, like we've, we've spoken about him, but Donald Glover's amazing. I think Love that, like, he's, he's just, like, out of this world, crazy creative. And then I would say, like, another one, and, and I know that this might be controversial, but, like, to me, when I think creative, I think people who push the status quo. And some people can do that through the arts. Some people can do that through science and technology. Some people can do that through business. Um... But being creative just means thinking up different solutions 
to common everyday problems or different different answers to common everyday questions, right? And so I think Elon Musk is a huge creative. Yeah. Like who who would have ever thought like a private industry leader could send people to space? Like that was the territory of <laughs> like the federal government and he was like no I don't care what you get he had people like Neil Armstrong um, for lack of a better term bastardizing him for doing it wow. like do, do you remember that interview in 60 Minutes no no I, I didn't catch that one no you should, you, somebody should look it up if you're listening to this and look up Elon Musk um, getting ridiculed for wanting to send people to space by the first astronauts like basically his childhood a hero icon the reason why he's doing it telling him he shouldn't be doing it and it's stupid for him to try. Wow. And he did it anyway. I think that that takes some creativity. The one, think through the problems. The two, push through the barriers. The three, even in the face of ridicule, do it anyway. I think that I think that, that takes creativity too. And so I think that like, um, you know, not, not limiting ourselves is creative, right? So um, again, like a historical, historical figure, I would say would definitely be like um, Leonardo da Vinci, Nowadays, in just terms of like the arts and pushing the envelope and getting people to think, I would definitely say Don Glover. And then, in terms of like, you know, uh, just overall, just like, wow, this is like new thinking I've never even thought of. I would feel Elon Musk. Beautiful. I, yeah, yeah, man. I would, I would agree. I would agree with all those. And and for where where can people connect with you exactly? Yeah. So I mean, um, I give out my phone number and. Uh, I think people might be like weirded out to like call somebody's direct phone, but don't feel weirded out. Like, feel free to give me a call. It's 304-339-5448. Yeah, I still kept my West Virginia phone number. Um, so yeah, you can reach out to me at my personal phone number. Um, I'll, I'm happy to talk to anybody and, and like try to help them get to the next stage, whatever that looks like. So in addition to peer recovery coaching, uh, I, I do transformational coaching, which basically means getting you from where you are to where you want to be. And so you don't have to be suffering through substance, right? It's just about helping your life get closer to that 10 that we were talking about. Um, if you're not comfortable with giving me a direct call, you can email me, Jacob, J-A-C-O-B, period, E, at hopeguides.com. Um, you can find me on Facebook. We're friends. Like, you can reach out to me there. I'm not shy on that either. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole there's a whole multiple ways people can get in touch with me. You can visit my website, hopeguides.com. Uh, and I'm looking forward to talking to anybody through through any of this stuff. Jake, thank you, man. It's been it's. I think your life is a, a great example of grace and just uh, the the awesome. circle, the circle, the, just just your whole journey is incredible. I think this episode is gonna help a lot of people. So I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, man. And seriously, if it, even if just one person hears it and it gives them hope, that's all that I care about. Awesome.